So, welcome to RUF. Glad you guys could join us tonight. Um, this semester we're going to talk about who is the real Jesus. We're going to be looking particularly uh, at stories from the Gospels where his character is revealed through things that he does. And uh, often strange things that he does that um, require us really to dig in and look a little more closely and, and then reveal often surprising things about Jesus. And, um, you know, as we come to this topic, one of the things I've been thinking about is, you know, all of us come to this topic, who is the real Jesus, with certain pictures of Jesus that we've picked up over the years that are kind of lurking in the background. I was reading an article in the Washington Post about a month ago um, by Emily McFarlane, who's titled this, How Jesus Became So White. And she's writing an article about this particular painting of Jesus. It was done in the 1940s by a Chicago artist. Um, it's now been reproduced a billion times. It is actually the most well-known American piece of art. More so than Whistler's mother, more than Norman Rockwell, more than Andy Warhol's soup cans. The most recognized piece of American art is this picture of Jesus with kind of flowing brown hair and blue eyes. It's a picture that actually was um, made for high school students to give them kind of the idea that Jesus was their buddy. And so it actually was painted in a way that it would look like other yearbook portraits from the 1940s. And that's the picture that's come down to us. And Emily writes this article about this, about this picture. I wanted to just read a little bit for you. The first time the Reverend uh, Letty Moses Carr saw Jesus depicted as black, she was in her 20s. It felt weird, she said. Until that moment, she had always thought Jesus was white. At least that's how he appeared when she was growing up. A copy of Warner Solomon's Head of Christ, that's the name of the painting, uh, the painting hung in her home, depicting a gentle Jesus with blue eyes turned heavenward and dark blonde hair cascading over his shoulders in waves. The painting, which has been reproduced a billion times, came to define what the central figure of Christianity looked like for generations of Christians in the United States. And beyond that, for years, Solomon's Jesus represented the image of God, said Carr, the director of ministry at First Baptist Church in Glen Arden, Maryland. When she grew up and began to study the Bible on her own, she started to wonder about that painting and the message it sent. It didn't make sense that this picture was of this white guy, she said. And Carr isn't the first to question Solomon's image of Jesus and the impact it's had not only on theology, but also on the wider culture. The Head of Christ has been called the best-known American artwork of the 20th century. Now, when you think about this painting, I want to, I want to say this. It's not just a painting that's damaging and hurtful to people of color, though it certainly is. The reason all of us need to be concerned about this is because it's damaging and hurtful to every one of us tonight. To have false pictures of Jesus kind of lurking in the background that color the way we think about Jesus. Maybe it's not a painting that you think of. Maybe it's a message you've heard or some other kind of preconceived ideas. But every one of us 
comes to this question, who is the real Jesus, with lots of stuff, lots of baggage lurking in the background. I have a friend, you know, this is, I guess, a Nashville story. You know, I've got lots of friends who are musicians. And um, one of these is a friend of mine named Matt Obmark. And for years, well, I guess he's still in this band, Jars of Clay. They don't play as much anymore. Um, maybe some of you are old enough to remember or have seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. But when that was in theaters, it was just kind of everywhere in the culture. Like churches were renting out movie theaters to host free showings of the movie. And a lot of people were going to see the movie. Well, at that point, Matt had kind of this long hair. He looked very much like Jesus in the, uh, in the painting, the Solomon painting that I'm describing. And he told me that that week... He just had this hysterical experience because he had to go to Home Depot to pick up something and he had to pick up this long beam. So imagine him walking through Home Depot looking like Jesus with the long flowing hair and this long wooden beam on his shoulders. He said as he walked through the, through the store, everybody were like turning around and gasping because he looked like Jesus. But of course, he didn't really look like Jesus. He looked like this painting of Jesus. But so much did people think that that's what Jesus looked like that they literally gasped and had to do a double take. Wait, did Jesus just walk down the aisle of Home Depot? Now, I guess that's a little humorous. But what we're talking about tonight, about these false ideas of who Jesus is, it's not humorous at all. It's not humorous at all. Uh, Tonight I want to talk about two barriers that that are there when we try to come to this question of who the real Jesus actually is. How can we discover who the real Jesus actually is? And the two barriers I want to talk about tonight, the first is being overly skeptical. I would say unreasonably skeptical about the Bible as a legitimate, reliable source for us to understand who Jesus is. That's the first barrier. The second barrier is, is a barrier even for those who have a high view of the Bible, who trust the Bible as a reliable source. Even those people have preconceived ideas to where they may say they believe what the Bible has to say, but in reality, they filter out things that they don't want to hear. So we're going to talk about these two barriers tonight. The first is, how can we know about Jesus, can we trust the gospel accounts? Now, of course, we can't know everything about Jesus. As a matter of fact, the end of the Gospel of John, the very last verse, talks about this very thing. It says that if all the things Jesus said and did were written down, that not even all the books in the world could contain all of that information. When you come to the Bible, you come to, I'm going to argue, reliable sources of information, but not exhaustive sources of information. The Bible doesn't tell us everything we might want to know. And as a matter of fact, there have been many periods in the history of the church, particularly in the Middle Ages, where people just kind of made up stuff to fill in the gaps, to satisfy their curiosity. Maybe you've heard of what we call the infancy narratives, which are plainly medieval forgeries. And if you want to get coffee and talk about why we know that that's true, um, 
but they, they have all kinds of crazy stories in there because people are just fascinated. Why don't we have any record of what Jesus did from the time he was born until the time he began his public ministry, except for that one story about him teaching all the teachers in the, in the uh, temple when he was 12. That's the only story we have. So people make up all these stories, like all the, all the friends of Jesus get together and they make little, little animals out of clay, except Jesus makes his come to life. You know? Or his father makes this table because um, his father Joseph was a carpenter, except the problem is Joseph's not a very good carpenter, and he makes a table where one of the legs is too short, and so Jesus helps him out and zaps the table and makes it perfect. There are all these kinds of weird stories. But the church has understood from the very beginning that the Gospels are reliable testimonies to who Jesus is. The church, the Jesus that the church has known is the Jesus known through the four Gospels. Richard Bauckham, a wonderful New Testament scholar, whose book I'm going to reference a few times. This, this is a fabulous book for those of you who are interested in this sort of stuff called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. He says this, Christian faith has trusted that in these texts, the four Gospels, we encounter the real Jesus. And it's hard to see how Christian faith and theology can work with a radically distrusting attitude to the Gospels. And yet there are many people who claim to profess faith in Christ who reject the Gospels as legitimately reliable sources of information about Jesus. I don't think it really works very well. You end up with a Jesus of your own creation. Let me just tell you how that's happened historically. You see, in the last couple hundred years, uh, many scholars have suspected that the Gospels are not actually a reliable account of who Jesus actually was. In fact, what the Gospels are, are a way to hide from us who the real Jesus was. That the Gospels are the projection of certain power plays by different groups in the early church. And so what you'll find, and you'll probably find this if you take you know, some religion classes at Belmont or many other schools, that people are so interested in what's the theology of Mark, the theology of John, the theology of Luke and Matthew, and they basically kind of start from this assumption that we, we basically have like this collection of stories that was kind of floating out there, and then you can figure out what Mark really cared about and what his theology was by what he includes and what he doesn't include. So this is a way where scholars are basically saying, look, we don't accept the Gospels, the way they present Jesus, we suspect that that is kind of a power play. And what we really need to try to do is get rid of all of Mark's bias and try and get back to what they would call the Jesus of history. But of course, I think what you need to realize is that they're, they're not just doing purely objective history. In other words, what they're doing is they're only accepting as reliable evidence the things that they believe a Jewish rabbi could have said and done in the first century. And so basically, the different scholars have different views of what different rabbis would have been like. And so presto, what happens is every one of these writers ends up with a different kind of Jesus. And the Jesus they come up with, because they filter out some things that they don't think he could have said, and they include some things they think he must have said, the, the, those Jesuses 
end up looking a lot like the scholars. So, for the pacifists, Jesus is the guy who went around spreading love, healing people, and teaching people to forgive their enemies. But for the Marxist revolutionaries, Jesus is the guy who went around defying authorities, calling them whitewashed tombs, and saying, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Now, here's the thing. Both of those things that I just said are in the Gospels. But what almost everybody tends to do is adopt a reductionistic Jesus. See, the real problem with this approach of trying to deconstruct the Gospels is that Jesus upsets everyone in one way or another, and we're all tempted to reduce him to a figure who fits our notions of what he should be like. Now, this isn't actually just a modern problem. St. Augustine, one of the most important Christian thinkers, really one of the most important thinkers in the history of the Western world, a North African, by the way, um, said this. He died in 430, and he said this, that if we accept what we like in the Gospels and reject what we don't like, it's not the Gospels we believe, it's ourselves. In other words, you can read the Bible to buttress your own preconceived ideas, but that's not really listening to the Bible. And it's going to keep you from understanding who the real Jesus actually is. And as we begin to investigate some of these scholars and the way they approach trying to figure out who Jesus is, we find they, they really make some kind of outlandish overstatements. I'll give you an example. There's a guy named Bart Ehrman. He's a professor at North Carolina. Um, I, I, last I checked, his New Testament intro was still widely used as a textbook there at Belmont. Some of you may actually discover that you use this book or you're using it this semester. He says in this book that none of the New Testament documents were written by anybody who knew Jesus personally. That's a strong statement. And you know what? There's no footnote. There's no sourcing in that book. He just states it. You're just supposed to trust him. And of course, my question would be, why would you trust this guy living 2,000 years after the fact more than the eyewitnesses who record their testimony in these four gospel accounts? Why should we consider him more trustworthy, particularly when most scholars who don't even profess faith in Jesus think that that statement is way overdone? One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Robert Yarborough, said this, and I've always found this helpful when you're reading different books on religion and different textbooks and, and sitting through various classes. He said, if anybody ever tells you all scholars agree, they're either hopelessly naive or trying to bully you. Bart Ehrman in that book is trying to bully you. He's not giving any sources. He's not saying, you know, this is a debate, but this is my view. He's just stating it as a bold fact and we're supposed to accept it. Well, what do we need to do? How, how, are we going to, how are we going to move forward into this? Here's one of the things that's important to understand. The Gospels are historical documents, but they're historical documents of a particular kind. What they are, are testimony. Testimony. 
their testimony. And testimony is something that we judge as either trustworthy or not. As a matter of fact, you can make a strong case that everything you know is based on testimony of one way or another. And you're always involved, human knowledge is always involved in having to make assessments about the trustworthiness of those who are giving testimony. Now, what's interesting is, in the first century, eyewitness testimony was regarded as more reliable than written accounts. In the century since then, things have kind of gotten flipped upside down. If you're writing a paper trying to prove a point, and you say, I talked to so-and-so, and they said this, it's not going to go very well for you in that paper. But if you quote sources, we just tend to trust written sources more. And so a lot of scholars have kind of projected that bias back onto the first century. In fact, though, the first century trusted eyewitness accounts. And here's what's fascinating. And this is what Richard Bauckham is doing in that book I held up a minute ago, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. That book is a revolutionary book because what he's arguing is the gospel writers are making it very clear in terms that their first century audience would have seen clearly that they had interviewed eyewitnesses for their gospels. As a matter of fact, when you go through the gospel accounts, if there is a story and somebody is named, that's the way the writer is telling you, I actually talked to this eyewitness. And where the, the, per, the story is told, maybe in a different gospel, and it just says two men were on the road to Emmaus, that means that the writer did not get to actually personally interview them. And when you actually look at the four gospels, and he does this in this book, it's fascinating, he's able to to reconstruct this is the Christian community that was in this area that Luke was able to interview. And this is the Christian community that Mark was able to talk to in Jerusalem. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. The eyewitness accounts are what the Gospels claim to be. Look at the way Luke says it, the beginning of his Gospel. Listen to these words. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, you can reject that, okay? But I hope that you will say, okay, I should at least consider what Luke is trying to do here. Luke is saying, I made a careful study, I interviewed eyewitnesses, and I'm writing a careful, orderly account so that you may believe. He's very clear about his objective. He's not saying, I'm just going to kind of lay this out here, this dispassionate, disinterested account. No, he is giving testimony that he wants you to receive. Well, what are we going to do with that? Do we think that that testimony could be trustworthy? Let me just give you maybe a, a, a handful of reasons why I think that testimony should be regarded as reliable 
as a way that we can come to understand who Jesus was and what he was like. First, do you know this? Even if we didn't have the Bible or any Christian writings from the first few centuries, we would know solely from Jewish and Roman sources alone that there was a Jewish man named Jesus who lived in the days of Pontius Pilate, who claimed to be God, that he was crucified by the Romans, and that very soon after that, his followers were running around claiming that he had risen from the dead and that he was God. You don't need the Bible for any of that. That whole outline can be derived solely from Jewish and Roman sources. But the Bible, I would contend, is the only, is the only filling out of the story that makes sense of that broad outline. It's the only thing that makes sense of how this emerged within a Jewish context and yet how it was so different than Judaism that the Jews wanted the Christians to be put to death for blasphemy. The real Jesus has to fit the context of Judaism and yet also be able to account for the existence and beliefs of the early church which caused it to be rejected by Judaism. The gospel accounts, I think, give a plausible explanation for why that might be that is in line with what the Jewish and Roman sources tell us, but fleshes out the story. Every one of the gospels, right from the very beginning, it's clear that they believe they are dealing with a remarkable, unique person, not some teacher that eventually after the centuries people began to put on a pedestal and worship. When you begin to read the Gospels for yourself, it's clear, just like Luke uh, wrote at the beginning of his Gospel. And there are some other reasons. Let me just quickly go through a couple of them. Listen, the educational system of the time. People learned by rote memorization. Thus, whenever people kind of give this example of, you know, whisper a story in someone's ear and then you whisper into somebody's ear and somebody's ear and then you get to like 20 people down the road and the story is completely garbled. It's not a fair comparison at all because the first century people learned by rote memorization. Not only that, rabbis expected their followers to write things down and to take notes. There's no reason to think that Jesus's disciples wouldn't have taken notes. And Jesus taught things in very memorable poetic forms. Not only that, but memorable, memorable events really emblazon themselves on people's minds, right? I mean, for, for Wendy and I, you guys weren't alive, but for Wendy and I, we will never forget where we were and what happened on 9-11. Never. Maybe some of you were alive. You sure don't remember it, okay? You, we will never forget that. The kinds of events that centered around Jesus were memorable events. Not only that, what's interesting is the Gospels, the four Gospels I mean, lack any teachings from Jesus about later controversies. We know from the second century, for instance, that there was quite a lot of debate about speaking in tongues, that there was quite a lot of debates about things like circumcision and whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised. What's fascinating is if the Gospels were written in the second century by people who were trying to get Jesus to support their side of those debates, they would have told stories 
that had Jesus siding with them. You don't find any of that. You don't find any of that. Not only that, when the Gospels were written, there were many eyewitnesses still around who could contradict it. And there's then the criteria of embarrassment. If you've read the Gospels, you find that the disciples look like idiots most of the time. But they didn't edit that stuff out, did they? The early church did not accept pious forgeries. I know you're going to be taught that a lot, that people wrote what were called pseudepigraphal works. That means works that were claimed to be written by somebody else. And there is some truth to that when it comes to histories. There was a literary device that was sometimes used in the Greco-Roman world. It's not true at all about letters. It's not true at all about letters. And so what you're dealing with with the New Testament documents are not pious forgeries. As a matter of fact, there was a, a, a deacon in the early church who basically compiled quotes from other letters written by Paul into kind of one letter. None of it was even made up. It was all legitimate quotes from Paul's letters. And he put it together in one letter, he said, out of a love for Paul. And he was stripped of his office for doing that, even though he did it not to deceive anybody, but out of a love for Paul. The church did not look kindly on forgeries. There's so much else that I could go into. And I, I think we'll see that when we begin to look at particular stories, right? See, here's one of the things. The, the way that so many historians these days want to break down anything remarkable, weed it out to try to get to Jesus, who would have been a first century rabbi, can't make sense of why he was remarkable why he was a threat to the Roman Empire. You know, they only crucified people who were a threat to the empire. Why was Jesus crucified? We have to make sense of that, all right? So that's, that's the first preconceived kind of notion that becomes a real barrier. And I just want to encourage you that there are a lot of good reasons for considering the Gospels to be reliable sources to understand who the real Jesus is. The second, though, is something that probably a lot of you on this call would say, well, that's not me. I have a very high view of the Bible. I really think the Bible is God's word and I trust it. Um, I do too. You know, in RUF, we have a very high view of the Bible. If you ask me, what do I want RUF to be known for? Here's what I want RUF to be known for. A gospel-driven community that takes the Bible seriously and takes people's doubts and questions seriously that we're a safe place for you to come and wrestle with that kind of stuff. That's what, that's what I want us to be known for, because those are core commitments that we have in RUF. And one of the dangers, even for people who have a high view of the Bible, is they still, unfortunately, and I include myself in this, tend to like certain things Jesus did and said, and not like other things. And we tend to filter out or ignore or not pay much attention to the things that we don't like. This is true of people on kind of both sides of the political spectrum, right? I don't even know what terms to use for that, but maybe people that are more progressive um, who really like to talk about how Jesus was loving and forgiving, right? And then there are other people that are like, no, Jesus tells us what to do and we just need to do it, right? Don't, don't you talk about a Jesus who just loves everybody because Jesus actually said, no, you got to do this and you got to believe that, right? And so sometimes these people kind of fight with each other. But here's the thing. John chapter one, this is what uh, the apostle John writes about Jesus. He says, the word became 
flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is John 1, verse 14. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, notice this, full of grace and truth. So the real Jesus is full of grace and truth. We tend to like Jesus who's full of grace, some of us, and others of us like Jesus full of truth. The real Jesus is full of grace and truth. As I said, the critics often end up creating a Jesus who's kind of like them, but we do it too, guys. We do it too. I remember when I was your age, I was in college up in Boston. I went to a place called Berkeley College of Music, and I remember deciding I needed to figure out some questions I had about Christianity and about what was it really all about. And I had different friends of mine that were telling me this thing and that thing. And I was like, I just need to go like try and find some books to figure out like what some of this stuff is about. And um, I started going to used bookstores. Now, I did, what I didn't know then, but I know now, is in general, used bookstores are kind of a graveyard for fads, theological fads. Like somebody gets some like kind of funky idea. Well, maybe Jesus you know, was high on mushrooms, you know, most of the time. And that accounts for everything. And, and, they'll be, and so somebody will write a book about it and they'll be like, ooh, that's kind of a brave new kind of idea. And then another book will come out saying, that's crazy and here's why. And then all those books end up in used bookstores. Um, I, I love books. And so I go to used bookstores all the time. Well, one time I found this, this book by, uh, by a guy named John Stott. You may not know John Stott's name. He's one of the most important um, conservative Christian leaders, uh, and I mean theologically, not necessarily um, politically, because he actually wasn't that conservative politically. Um, but John Stott, one of the great Christian, British Christian leaders of the 20th century, a real mentor to people like Tim Keller, if you've ever heard of him. Um, he wrote a book that I found called Christ the Controversialist. Very British title, really, isn't it? Um, but I remember just that title, I was like, what? What can that be about? Christ the Controversialist. You know, it was a book, an entire book, on the arguments of Jesus. I never thought of Jesus as an argumentative guy. I thought of Jesus as a guy who went around like saying, there, there, everything's going to be okay. And there are places where he says that, right? But Jesus argued with people so much that you could make an entire book out of nothing but the arguments of Jesus. So it wasn't just that I got to read this book and learn about some of the arguments Jesus had. Even the fact that that book existed was like really huge for me to wake me up to the fact that I just had this idea of Jesus, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that I'd picked up from some bad hymns that had nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible. And I think all of us are tempted to do that kind of thing, you know? I hear this phrase sometimes. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've said it. My Jesus isn't like that. <laughs> My Jesus isn't like that. Again, remember what Augustine said 1,500 years ago. If we accept what we like in the Gospels and reject what we don't like, it's not the Gospels we believe. It's ourselves. And here's the thing. Some of the stuff that we reject is the stuff that we really need to hear. So what I mean is this. You know, there's this story of a woman, which, you know, we'll probably talk about this later in the semester, who's been bleeding for 12 years. It's in the gospel according to Mark. And she's so 
tentative about even approaching Jesus, that she decides to basically get in the middle of this crowd and just reach out and barely touch him. She's thinking to herself, if I could just touch him, maybe he would heal me. And, and I think there's so much sadness to that story that because that bleeding for 12 years made her ceremonially unclean and made her not able to actually touch people. And I think about that because for a lot of us, we've not been able to touch people for months. For 12 years, she was not supposed to touch people. But she touches Jesus, but she does it in secret. And Jesus instantly turns around and said, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what do you mean? Who touched you? There's like people crowded all over you. Of course, people are bumping into you and shoving into you and touching you. But the woman knows what he means. And she steps forward. And she says, it was me. And she bows down and she expects that he's going to scold her. Because after all, she's not supposed to touch a pure religious teacher like Jesus. But what does he say? He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I love that. Daughter. You know, for some of us, we kind of like Jesus being mad at us. I know that sounds weird, but maybe we don't like ourselves very much. And the stuff that we resist are stories like that where Jesus comes to a woman who's so locked in shame that she feels like she can't even ask Jesus for anything. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe the real Jesus that you need to, to come to know is a Jesus full of grace, full of mercy, who says, daughter, you've been healed, go in peace. Maybe the Jesus that you need to, to hear tonight is Jesus said, look, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross and deny yourself. That whoever loses his life will find it. Maybe the reason that Jesus seems to be so little and so ineffective in your life is because you're keeping him at arm's length. And you don't trust what he says about where real life is found. I don't know. There's all kinds of reasons that we resist the real Jesus. But here's the good news, guys. The scripture has power. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that the scripture, that the word of God is alive and can cut through all of the barriers, can get down into the deepest parts of our soul, lay us bare, and also open our eyes to see Jesus. That's our hope with RUF this semester, is that we would see Jesus as more beautiful and believable as he's presented in the scriptures, and that God would send his spirit to break through all the barriers we try to put up to keep him at bay or to mold him into our own image. The real Jesus upsets everybody. Listen, anybody that interacted with Jesus wanted to worship him or kill him. Nobody had a neutral reaction to Jesus. Jesus is never just all right with anybody. And I pray that you'll keep tracking with us as we dig into this story. I'll tell you one more last thing. There's a guy named R.C. Sproul. He's a great Bible teacher who's passed away now. Um, but he said one time, the best way to grow as a Christian, and I would say the best way to learn what Christianity is about, is to go through the Bible and underline everything you don't like. And then meditate on that. 
Because either you need to change or God needs to change. And I know where I'm placing my bets. <laughs> you know, the word reformed in uh, Reformed University Fellowship, which is what RUF stands for. It basically means this, that our need for God is so great and our hearts are so twisted that we literally need to be reformed by God's power and God's grace. And that isn't something that just happens once. We need it all the time. That's why every week we're going to worship. We're going to pray that the Spirit would open our eyes to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable. And we're going to open up the Scriptures, which has real power, real power to transform us as we see Jesus, the beautiful and believable one who takes our breath away. Let me pray. 